0: Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Uh, My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and I am so grateful to be able to gather together with you this morning. Um, You might notice that our room is a little warm, and uh, I just want to quickly say we are waiting for a missing part from Jeff Bezos to fix our AC, but the momentary discomfort of a warm room pales in comparison to the momentary discomfort and pain of childbirth, so we are going to be fine. Mothers, you have brought these children into the world, and they are already ready to leave to the other side of the building. Uh, Blue station, three to five years. I don't know if I have to give these instructions. Y'all know what you're doing, so we're just going to dive right in. This gives me more time for a long sermon. The springtime, my dear friends, is a very special time in my life. I would not be a Christian if it weren't for a faithful Christian mother. Sadly, though, I cannot give that credit to my mother. She's not a Christian yet but a faithful Christian mother named Anita Roselius. I don't think she uh, looks me up online, so I don't think she's gonna hear her name in this sermon. But Anita Roselius was a faithful Christian woman, an older Christian woman, who bought for her daughter a copy of the most significant book I have ever read in my life, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Uh, a journalist's personal investigation of the evidence of Jesus. Friends, 15 years ago, By the power of God's Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ, God saved me using this book. I had significant questions about the historicity of Jesus Christ and the claims of Christianity. I wondered and questioned, is the God of the Bible even real? Uh, Is Jesus Christ trustworthy? Can I actually believe the claims of Christ? Uh, That God uh, uh, created all things out of nothing, that God created uh, all the creatures that would fill the world, that God created all people that looked like me and didn't look like me. Uh, and then uh, for some reason, these people rebelled against this good God and, and, and committed a, a, a great heinous sin and, and treason against him. And now people, all of humanity is deserving of judgment from God. Well, what about the person in that one really far off island where they never hear the gospel? Am I really supposed to believe that that person can also go to hell? Uh, is hell even real? Am I really supposed to believe that? Uh, how can I believe in the Bible and trust in the authority of the Bible if, if, if it's been written and translated into so many different versions? I mean, these were genuine questions that I was struggling with and trying to grapple with in high school. But a godly older woman, a faithful Christian mother, bought this book for five ninety nine, dollars and the tag is still there and it's fading away. And that young girl gave me this book to read, and friends, I still have, I found the answers to my questions, and they're doggy-eared in this book. If my house burns down, my wife and children will be the first ones that I will get out of that house, and then I will jump back in to pick up this book. If you are wondering, can I really trust and believe in the claims of Jesus Christ, buy yourself a copy of this book, and I will read it with you. I will not give you my copy. I am sorry. I will happily buy a copy for you. But this book saved my life. And I remember going to a Roman Catholic church locally um, at that time and uh, as I was uh, understanding and learning that the Bible indeed is historically valid and historically reliable, that the, 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 the fundamental do- uh, documents found in the uh, collection of the writings of the Bible is historically true and accurate and trustworthy, I remember sitting in the confirmation class in this Roman Catholic church where the deacon leading the class said, and I quote, I will never forget this. Maybe I will one day, but I haven't yet, 15 years later. Scripture is good, but it is not enough. You must have tradition. All through this series of confirmation classes, I remember I was reading the Bible from, uh, with a group of Protestant Christians, and I was going to a Roman Catholic church, learning Roman Catholic doctrine, but every week, my hand would go up in class and say, but Deacon Dave, that's not what the Scriptures teach. The, the, the scriptures, would, when, when he quoted this, I responded with a hand raised up in the air. But Deacon Dave, the apostle Paul said in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it really does seem like, yeah, tradition might be okay, but it seems like scripture is not just good, but it's more than enough. I very quickly became a black sheep in um, that confirmation class, but this interaction was my last interaction with the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't know it then, but the Lord led me to faith through this period of exploring what the Bible teaches and understanding God's word amongst God's people. Friends, for centuries, the church has had to combat all kinds of unsound doctrines, in in my experience, the very first unsound doctrine that I didn't even understand I was combating was that of uh, combating the, the the authority of Scripture, uh, which providentially led me to become a Baptist. Amen. But for centuries, the churches had to combat unsound doctrine or false teachings. Uh, You can look at the first letter to the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul had to deal with false teachers there in the church in Corinth who who denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or, Or you can read the letter to the Galatians where the Apostle Paul argued against those who were falsely teaching that justification was by Jesus plus becoming a Jew, not faith alone in Christ's finished work alone. Or you can read the letter to the Colossians where the Apostle Paul warned against a strange Jewish mystical teaching that combined the various Jewish dietary laws and Greek philosophy. It's strange. He's combating false teaching there in Colossae. Maybe you want a little bit of a different flavor from a different uh, apostolic author. Well, you can read the Apostle John's first letter uh, in uh, 1 John there towards the back of the Bible where he confronted false teaching which denied that Jesus came in a literal, physical human body. The false teaching that said that if you're going to be saved, then you need to discover this special, secret knowledge that only a very special, select group of people had possession of. Friends... If we're not careful, unsound doctrine can cause great damage in the church. Maybe some of us have experienced that in our past and uh, previous churches, but we must be careful about this. Unsound doctrine can cause great damage. And When we survey the New Testament, what we see is that the apostles, those who were providing spiritual care and oversight for churches, those who were training and raising up elders in various different towns where local churches were being established, they had a great concern for sound doctrine being protected and guarded and unsound doctrine being rejected and, defend, uh, and, and, and combated. But false teachings didn't end Once the canon of scripture was closed and the last of the apostles died, the early church, if you uh, just survey through church history, throughout the centuries, the early church had to combat all kinds of false teachings. And brothers and sisters, when I say early church, I mean your brothers and sisters in the faith 2,000 years ago were doing hard work so that 2,000 years from their time, we could have sound doctrine to delight in Christ in early church, our brothers and sisters in the faith, they had to combat false teachers and false teachings, like the teachings that claimed that Jesus wasn't actually God incarnate. That instead, he was actually just a spirit, and he just appeared to have a body, right? Which sounds more absurd than someone coming back from the dead and appearing to many. Uh, they had to combat uh, the false teachings that, uh, of those that taught that Jesus Christ was not equal to God the Father by nature. Rather, he was God's first creation, that he was the first of many. Our early brothers and sisters combated that false teaching. They also combated the false uh, teachings of those that taught that Jesus was actually two distinct persons. Not one person who possessed both a divine nature and a human nature, all right, for, for all the theology buffs in the room, that, that's what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. Rather, they, they falsely taught that Jesus was actually two different people. But the person and work of Jesus Christ was not the only category of Christian teaching that was under assault from false teachings. One of the most common false teachings back then and even today was regarding the Christian understanding of the Trinity. Friends, you may have uh, uh, some very well-intentioned uh, men and women coming to your door, knocking on your door, and give you a little pamphlet and say, hey, do you want your suffering to end? Well, read this, and there's some Bible verses there, and then you flip over and, 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 and you see the, the, the title Watchtower or JW.org. Friends, the Jehovah's Witnesses group believes... Uh, a false understanding of the Christian's understanding of the Trinity. Orthodox Christianity throughout the centuries has consistently believed that God has always existed as a triune God. What do we mean by that? One God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So we recognize and understand that God is one God in three persons, with all three persons being distinct persons, yet equally divine in their essence. But the false teaching of modalism back then and even today denied that the Trinity was one God in three persons. Rather, this unsound doctrine that has crept into many churches today insists that God was a single person, who throughout biblical history has revealed himself in three modes, right? So that's why it's called modalism. God has revealed himself in three modes or forms. So in the Old Testament, these false teachers are teaching that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in the mode of the father, right? But then in the incarnation, God has revealed himself in the mode of the son, And then in the ascension, God has revealed himself in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is not sound doctrine. It is not orthodox Christianity. But we could spend so much more time looking at so many more forms of false teachings, uh, many of which we may be uh, unwittingly susceptible to. Uh, We may know friends and family members who listen to the false teachings that are rampant in our time today, from word of faith teaching, bless you, brother, to uh, prosperity theology, But for our time together this morning, we're gonna consider from Titus chapter two, how sound doctrine builds up a church while unsound doctrine can tear it down. So again, you survey the New Testament and what you'll see is that there's a clear, significant concern for biblical churches to keep a close watch on sound doctrine and to not be led astray by unsound doctrine. Now, quick disclaimer, there are some who hear the word sound doctrine and man, they just get so excited. They're like, I love theology. I love doctrine. Give, give me more. Right? To the detriment, though, of demonstrating kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and the rest of the parts of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Uh, there, there's this sense of which uh, the more I know and learn, uh, the better Christian I'll be. And, and there is some truth in that. Like the more you know, the more you will be able to love God and understand what God has said. However, the danger is that the more we learn and know, we may be tempted to just puff ourselves up and then look at those who don't know as much as us uh, with a certain contempt, a certain impatience, a certain lack of willingness to bear with those who are weak. Uh, I am reminded regularly that those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. Now, there's another group that hears sound doctrine or theology, and they think, oh boy, that's just for all those eggheads over there. That's just for the ivory tower uh, intellectual types. I I don't need to deal with that because what I need to deal with is how to raise my children and love my neighbors. There's an element of truth to that as well, but it's imbalanced. In order to inform your ability to live well according to the scriptures, the scriptures must inform how you live, you can't just make this stuff up. The scriptures are sufficient for us and finally and fully authoritative for us to submit to, to say, this is how God expects us and has instructed us to live, so I'm going to learn what he has said and then do accordingly. All right. So there's a bit of a balance here. We've got to balance ourselves because our concern is not exclusively just the protection of sound doctrine, right? nor is it just exclusively the protection of how we live. It's actually both. Now, we see this similar concern all through the New Testament. So this isn't just me on a hobby horse here. Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn to these passages. You can write these verses down and meditate upon them maybe throughout the week. But Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 18, the Apostle Paul, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, and if if you're there already, underline this, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Do do, do you see here the commitment to doctrine leading to a commitment to living in righteousness? Or you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter uh, chapter 1, in uh, uh, verses 3 to 5. Paul again says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You'll hear Pastor Josh and I say, refer to this, uh, uh, this fifth verse often. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul goes on. It seems like he's got a, a, a bit of a concern here for uh, doctrine and teaching. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's instructing and training Timothy, listen, keep a close watch on yourself, your, the way you're living, and on the teaching. Well, Paul wasn't done, First Timothy chapter 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, did you catch that? The teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Friends, there is a real possibility that we can consume and consume and consume and consume and and grow so knowledgeable in our understanding of all the Christian doctrine stuff that we actually understand nothing if the teaching that we are consuming does not accord with godliness being reflected. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Brothers and sisters, in 2017, I, I got clean. I got clean from the addiction to Facebook. It's so good to tell Mark Zuckerberg, hey, thanks for this, but I found something better, and it's not on the internet. I deleted Facebook. I stopped with, with this, uh, uh, this craving for controversy and to want to read the, the, just the, the pits of the comment section that was just filled with controversy and quarrels. And I just learned how to practically be more focused on loving my neighbors and the members of the household of faith. Right? Now, I'm not saying, hey, go delete Facebook. You're welcome to do whatever you like. But that was just something that I did. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by it professing, but for, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I'll give you one last verse because there's so many more that we can consider. 2 Timothy chapter one. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Friends, I say all of this to remind us that the church has a, uh, a, 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 a sobering responsibility to guard the sound doctrine that has been entrusted to us. Uh, the, The pastors of the church are to guard this doctrine. The members of the church are to guard this doctrine. And the teaching that we are gleaning from the scriptures is that which accords with godliness. So even if you don't think that much about theology or doctrine, if, if you're somebody that's, you just don't have any interest in reading Calvin's Institutes or Herman Boving's Reformed Dogmatics, you have really no interest in reading uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, that's okay. You don't have to go that high, but you do have an, a, an important obligation to grow in your understanding to be able to protect sound doctrine in the church. Sound doctrine... Whether we realize this or not, whether we use this language or not, sound doctrine shapes everything. It shapes everything, Uh, not just individually in our own lives, but as a church, sound doctrine shapes our preaching. It shapes our prayer. It shapes our singing, our practice of meaningful church membership. It shapes our church discipline, our budget, our evangelism, our biblical counseling, our visitations to sick or shut-in members. Sound doctrine shapes our caring for one another, our encouragement of one another, our exhortation of one another, our rebuking of one another. It shapes our marriages, it shapes our parenting, it shapes all of our relationships, and it shapes our hope. Sound doctrine shapes everything. The main idea of our passage, which we'll get to here in just a moment, is simply this. Sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. Sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. That's, that slide will stay up there for a couple moments for you to jot that down, but this is a, a good thought to just think about as you're reading the scriptures this week. Sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. So turn with me now to Titus chapter two. We're gonna be looking at the first 10 verses. If you're new to reading the Bible The letter to Titus is a brief letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. It's found in the New Testament, which is closer to the back of the Bible. Uh, The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. You can also follow along uh, either on the screens, or um, let me encourage you, grab the Black Pew Bible that's in front of you, and you can just turn to page 1184. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so, train the young women to love their husbands and children Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Friends, this brief letter, this brief pastoral letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his pastoral protege, Titus, and it was written to offer him encouragement, instruction, and wisdom as Titus was facing some significant opposition in his ministry leadership from really just two camps of people in the church. There was one camp of ungodly people who basically were just living as as they wanted to. They uh, were given over to a life of licentiousness. Uh, Their lives did not reflect or demonstrate a willingness to submit to the uh, commands of God. And then there was another camp of people uh, who were legalists. That word's kind of thrown around in our modern evangelical circles, but this camp of people insisted that true salvation required Jesus plus circumcision. So not just Jesus by faith alone. You had to get circumcised if you really wanted to be saved. And when you read through this brief letter, which really it can take you less than 15 minutes to do so. I mean, you can do this as you're waiting for uh, lunch this afternoon at the local restaurant. When you read through this letter, you'll notice a few things. First, Paul instructs Titus that he is to appoint elders in every town for the churches under his care, and then he also gives uh, Titus descriptions of what these kinds of people should be. The specifically the elders that are to be appointed gives particular criteria for qualifications for uh, these elders. And then he tells how the church was to live together with one another and among outsiders so that the doctrine of God would be held up with great respect and reverence. So from our passage this morning, there's four questions that we're going to answer. Four questions. The first question, simply what is sound doctrine? What is it? So Paul instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the first question we probably should ask is what is sound doctrine? So like I said earlier, Paul's concern, our concern as well, was not exclusively for the doctrine, nor was it exclusively for how a Christian lived. There's a third way. The concern for Paul, the concern for Titus, and the concern for us today was both for doctrine and living. Sound doctrine was to inform the church's sound living. So how are we to understand what sound doctrine means? Well, a really helpful definition that I discovered and found was from a little book written by Bobby Jameson called Sound Doctrine. It's a very creative title. Sound doctrine, how the church grows in the love and holiness of God. It's a very helpful read. It's very, very short. Uh, If you're going on vacation soon, you can just grab a copy and you can read it probably in about a couple hours. But here's how Jameson helpfully defined sound doctrine sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. Sound doctrine is is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. There's something that we should do with the doctrine that has been given to us. Sound doctrine informs sound living. And throughout the centuries, churches all around the world have made an effort to guard and clearly articulate sound Christian doctrine. You can look at the earliest creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, you can fast forward all the way into the future to 1833 when my personal favorite Baptist confession was written, the New Hampshire Confession. You can read that confession and understand sound Christian doctrine. Better yet, consider going onto our website, our church's website, to read our church's statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Friends, sound doctrine is a summary of what the Bible teaches. So what would a summary of sound doctrine look like? Well, I think a helpful summary would be something like, we believe God is the originator of all things and that God has given us the scriptures as our perfect guide. People were created to worship God but have sinned against him and so justly deserve his punishment. But... God demonstrated his love for humanity in freely offering us salvation, which is rooted in God's grace and made possible through the perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Salvation includes the simultaneous gifts of regeneration and justification that are linked necessarily to the response of repentance and faith. God's work of salvation continues on in the believer's sanctification and ensures the perseverance of believers to the end. Believers are united in the church, which is made visible in local bodies of believers like this right here. This this gathering right here, this local body gathering together is a work of God. Uh, local bodies of believers that faithfully preach God's word and administer the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As Christians, we recognize God's design in the family and our responsibility to civil government, and our final hope looks toward the resurrection and the world to come, which we pray will arrive soon. Friends, that's just a brief summary of the doctrine of the Scriptures. Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching. It's, it's both faithful to the Bible and it's useful for life. Now, our second question. Who is sound doctrine for? There are some in churches who believe, well, sound doctrine and the whole issue of theology, that's just for the pastors. Like, they're the ones who are paid to do this work of teaching and preaching. I don't really need to worry about it. Paul didn't seem to hold that thought. When you, when you read this brief passage... Uh, sound doctrine is let's just go one by one starting with verse two sound doctrine is for older men Uh, a couple of weeks ago pastor josh made the statement that if you're still if you're in your 30s you're no longer young Uh, i very quietly booed him in the back but i'm submitting to my elder and so i'm recognizing i am now surprisingly an older man older men Sound doctrine is to inform how you live. You are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Th- th- there's, this, there's this concern here that older men are to be self-controlled and respectable. And there's so much more Paul could have included in this brief instruction. You can read all of the other one another commands and older men. I'm looking at all of y'all, me included. If we look at all the one another commands and just put them here with this little brief verse, we are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and all these other commands as well. Now, the point isn't that we are to be perfect in all of these things. Perfection has not come yet. The point is we are to be distinctive we are not to be given over to the, the, the youthful, the selfish cravings of the young. We are to be dignified, respectable. New Christians who walk into a building should be able to look at an older man in the church and say, you know what? If I'm gonna become a more mature Christian, I should look like that guy. I should follow him. I should do what he's doing. Christian discipleship necessarily involves both instruction and imitation. Now, if you are an older man, let's just say you're retired. Dear brother, God is not done with you. He's got so much for you. You might be in your quote-unquote American golden years, but the Lord still has much ministry for you to do. And it involves the brothers and sisters here in the local church. You may not be able to physically board a plane and go overseas or or go to Utah and, and, and proclaim the gospel. You may not be able to do those things physically. That's okay. But you can be an example to the younger men so that they grow in discipleship and godliness. But God doesn't just have plans for the older men in the church. Ladies, he's got plans for you. He's got plans for the older women in the church and the younger women. Look at verses three to five. Likewise, older ladies, you are to be reverent in behavior. This is a broad term. In everything you do, in speech, in action, in thought, and in deeds, you are to be reverent in your behaviors. You are not to be like the real housewives of OC, or whatever season they're on now, slanderers and slaves to much wine. No, you're to be reverent in behavior and Did you know that you have a teaching ministry as well? Your teaching ministry is not going to look exactly like Pastor Josh and mine's, but the scriptures clearly teach that you are to teach what is good. You are to teach what is good and so train the young women in the context of the local church to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. All of these things and so much more. You can take all of the one another commands and read those after you read these. All of these things are to be done so that the word of God may not be reviled. Ladies, you have a significant contribution in the work and ministry of the local church. And it's going to look very unglamorous. This is not very glamorous There's nothing really all that exciting about inviting another lady over to your house while you've got laundry in the living room and you're brewing some coffee at the table. But friends, do you know how much ministry can be done over your dirty dining room table? To teach what is good and to train younger women towards godliness? There are young women in the church who want to learn and to grow. Older ladies, you are God's plan for them. Lots of other instructions could have been given. But Paul's aim here seems to be that older women are to help train younger women in the church in godliness. But God's plan does not end uh, for the local church with the older men, the older women, and the younger women. Verse 6, younger men. Apparently, you have to be 29 or younger to be considered a younger man. I don't know what the the objective uh, uh, qualification is for what a younger man is, but if you're young, you know it. Younger men, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's all he's got. He just says, younger men, be self-controlled. We can parse that out. Younger men are to be self-controlled with their tongues. You can read James chapter 3, the damage and the destruction that our tongues can cause. Younger men are to be self-controlled with their bodies. You know how much destruction and damage you can do with your bodies when you're not careful or thoughtful? You're to be self-controlled with your behavior, with your actions, with your speech. In every way, you were to be self-controlled. The reality is, if you let yourself loose, all y'all younger men, I am looking at you as one of the older men in this church, if you let your fleshly cravings loose, you will head down towards a path of death and destruction. There is nothing good waiting for you if you let yourself loose and throw away the caution of self control. The reality is, if you do not trust in Christ yet, and I'm saying yet, the self, your true self, is not something you need to discover and embrace. Your true self needs to be crucified at the cross of Christ, and then you need to find a new self. And to put on a new self that is only available through the grace of Jesus Christ. If you let yourself loose, yeah, that momentary pleasure might be nice. But you will be burned and you will head towards destruction. But if you trust in Christ and put off the old self and put on the new self that he gives to you according to his own righteousness, you will find true life. True pleasures, eternal pleasures that will never burn you or dissatisfy. Now, verse 7 and 8, Paul goes back, he, he, he gives basic instructions to what relationships in the church should look like, and he's speaking to Titus again, verses 7 and 8. Titus, he's to model what Christianity looks like for the men and the women, both young and old, in the church. Titus is instructed, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, uh, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Friends, Titus' responsibilities was not only to teach sound doctrine and to shape Christians to grow in godliness, he himself was to be a model of all these things. There's a similar connection if you flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. And I know Pastor Josh is preaching through Hebrews. I'm not trying to preach uh, his sermon here. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, we're given a similar, ins- uh, similar instructions as Paul gives to Titus. Verse 7, remember your leaders, also known as your pastors, those who spoke to you the word of God, friends, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's a, there's a strong, strong reason uh, why being a pastor keeps me up at night, uh, and it's not the pastoral fires that need to be tended to. It's the fact that our lives and, and, and our, uh, our faith is on display, and not only will we be judged according to the work that we have done as pastors and teachers, but an entire group of people will be formed through the teaching and the life of the elders of a local church but the responsibility for the church is to look at the model christians perhaps the local elders and to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith now paul goes back to another category of relationships bond servants verses 9 and 10. Sound doctrine is for bond servants. These were people who willingly subjugated themselves to a period of work, uh, maybe to pay off a debt uh, or to earn a certain wage, and then after a period of time, they would be freed. Bond servants, they too were to be informed by sound doctrine, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They were to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Friends, Practically speaking, this could speak to basic employees in the context of a local church. If you if you work for someone, you are subjugating yourself and your time for a wage. Be well pleasing. Don't be a jerk. Don't be unkind to your uh, to, to your uh, secular coworkers. Don't be argumentative for argumentative sake. Don't don't be someone who's pilfering time or post-it notes or paper clips but show all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. If you're stealing time at work, that does not help to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, but be an honorable bond servant. Friends, these are just basic commands that Paul is giving very briefly because sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. Now, Many of us will probably consider doctrine in the church and we're probably not going to be tempted to question or discredit the the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Uh, We're probably not going to uh, 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 discount or discredit uh, the orthodox understanding of the trinity or the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency and clarity of the scriptures. Uh, We're probably not going to argue that, well, you can find salvation outside of Jesus as well. That's, That's probably not a threat for us. But there is an important question that we need to ask. It's our third question. What unsound doctrines are we tempted to believe? So Arianism, Nestorianism, Pelagianism, uh, 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 modalistic monarchianism, all those isms might not be stuff that we are tempted to. But friends, there are a few isms that we might be tempted to believe if we're not careful. I'm going to quickly give you a couple of examples. The first one which is perhaps the most common false teaching, under the guise of the gospel, is moralism. In many churches today, congregants are taught that once they are saved, it is up to them to, quote-unquote, fly right and do better. The Christian life is one of effort, and God blesses those who help themselves, work hard, keep their noses clean, tell the truth, and live a good life, whatever living a good life means. Now, It is true that there are specific commands of obedience in the scriptures that Christians are called to obey. We don't have a free pass to disobey God's commands. But obedience to God's commands is not how we earn favor with God. In fact, if you're a Christian, you never earned the favor of God that you possess now anyway. Did you know that the favor that you possess with God has been freely bestowed upon you by the alien righteousness of jesus christ jesus who knew no sin was made to become sin so that you might become the very righteousness of god friends unwittingly many people will begin to believe that the gospel is basically an economic transaction where we give god our obedience and he gives us blessing that's not the gospel The gospel is not, well, I'm going to obey God so that I've got food and shelter and a good marriage and and children that turn out well, a good job and occasional vacations. That is not why we obey God. We obey God because God is God. But there's another uh, unsound doctrine we might be tempted to believe, and it's closely related to moralism, but it's a little bit different. It's called legalism. Legalism, and you might be wondering, well, what does this one mean? One pastor said, legalism is the tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in scripture and the inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. So friends, legalism is going to be, I'm going to make specific rules by myself, based upon my own preference, that I'm going to put on you, and if you don't obey that rule that I made up, you're not being faithful to the scriptures. You're not being faithful to Christ, right? This is a spirit of man-made religion. It comes down to this. And, and, and maybe you're tempted to feel this or believe this or even teach your kids this. I create rules and expectations not found in the Bible, and then I feel good about myself and my relationship with God because I obeyed them. All the while, I'm judging others for having failed to live up to this artificial standard of godliness. Friends, that's not the gospel. We have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's finished work alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone, so that we may adorn the doctrine of God and honor him and find our eternal hope in Christ. Now, there's a third uh, uh, false doctrine that we might be tempted to believe. This one is a little bit of a longer word. I'm not trying to uh, brag in my ability to pronounce these words. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. But the third unsound doctrine we might be tempted to believe is something called antinomianism. Uh, the, the, the word basically it just means against the law. Anti, against. Uh, uh, namus the law it simply means against the law the person who is succumbed to this form of thinking is the person who is so infatuated with their perception of god's forgiveness that they leave obedience to god's commands behind so the antinomian is going to say well it's god's job to forgive so surely i'm free to go have extramarital sex The antinomian is going to say, Well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so why not indulge in this sinful lifestyle? Well, God's going to forgive me, so I can just go do whatever I want. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel changes us and leads us to conformity to the image of Christ as we are obeying the scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit. Saying no to our old selves and saying yes to put on our new selves. The gospel actually helps us to understand what the purpose of the law is in the first place. Here's a fourth one. It's the God and country gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you've seen license plates and t-shirts that link the Christian flag and the American flag as though these two flags reinforce each other and are never in competition with each other. The God and country gospel says, I have more in common with someone who denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus or even the existence of God in the first place because they vote for the same political candidate that I voted for. And so we're going to take our country back by the way we vote according to whatever conservative morals we might hold to. But friends, the pressures of the political culture to baptize America as a Christian nation without any qualification, that actually repre- this actually represents a form of false teaching. God's kingdom is not identified with any political order or nation state, but stands in judgment over all of them. God's kingdom is going to extend forever, and all of the nation state political projects are going to one day come to an end. And if we fail to distinguish God's kingdom from America or any other nation state that we want to think of, that really is just a form of false teaching. The fifth uh, temptation that we might uh, be tempted to believe the prosperity gospel. This one's kind of a straw man, like it's kind of an easy target, because we see these guys on on TV, on, on, on Christian networks and Christian channels, you might unwittingly, you know, buy these books and not even understand what the prosperity gospel teaches, but when it comes to the prosperity gospel, the blessings aren't just merely sufficient food or shelter or relatively good marriages and children, rather, it's extravagance. Our obedience, according to the prosperity gospel, is the pathway to fantastic material success. The prosperity gospel says you can know that God is pleased with you if you're driving that really sweet Cadillac. Uh, You can know God is really pleased with you if you've got that nice house. Uh, If you want God's blessing, Turn up the dial on your obedience, and he is going to pour forth and shower upon you financial and material blessing. Friends, this kind of quid pro quo approach to God, it's the very heart of moralism. I look at God as a means to get me stuff, and he looks at what I do to give me that stuff. That's the heart of prosperity gospel thinking. That's the heart of materialism thinking. Friends, the gospel gives us God. Middle-class American lifestyle is not a sure, definite sign that God is pleased with you and you're doing all the right stuff. Friends, middle-class American lifestyle, that's great. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount and when you read First Timothy chapter, uh, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Middle-class American lifestyle is not on the list of God's provisions. And praise God if he's given that to you. But praise God that he has given you favor with himself through his son, and he will never take that away. You might lose your status in uh, the uh, American economic standing. But if you are in Christ, you will never lose your standing with God. Brothers and sisters, are you tempted to believe this, these false teachings? Are any of these types of unsound doctrines, things that... You're, sometimes you've got the itch and you just got to scratch it are you tempted to believe them can you tell the difference from any of these unsound doctrines i've just shared with the genuine doctrine of the gospel friends the christian gospel is the fundamental doctrine that the local church is built upon the central doctrine of christianity is the gospel You might not be someone who understands all of the theological arguments for the Trinity. That's okay. We can help you get there. You might not be someone who understands what justification is. We're going to help you get there. The central doctrine, though, is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is an announcement. It is good news. It is better news than material success. It is better news than, hey, just go pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It is better news than, hey, if you really want to be saved, you're going to have to clean yourself up a little bit more. It is good news that the one and only God who is holy, who has made us in his image, against whom we have sinned and rebelled against, This holy, good, gracious God has sent his Son, God himself, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, without sin, who is both fully God and fully man, who lived the perfect life you and I cannot live, who died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin against this good God, and he has given uh, given to us his very life, his atoning death, his satisfactory sacrifice, his glorious resurrection to fulfill the punishment of the sins of many. Friends, the gospel calls us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again to a new eternal life with God. Many of us have been striving to earn friendship and favor with God and we have failed and we are exhausted. But the gospel reminds us that Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Friends, if you are tempted to believe in any of those false doctrines, look to the better one. Look to the true Christian doctrine in the gospel. Fourth question. I think you're going to get the answer to this question very easily. But the fourth question is simply, why do we need sound doctrine? Well, if I haven't been clear, let me clearly say this again. Friends, we need sound doctrine for sound living. It's what Titus chapter 2 is showing us. We need sound doctrine for sound living. You might be, though, someone who is asking, I don't know how to grow in doctrine, I don't, I'm not really somebody who reads much. I'm not really somebody that's, that really has a whole lot of time to engage in a studious aspect of Christianity. I understand that. I get that. You know, we've all got jobs and, 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 and responsibilities and children and whatnot. But friends, sound doctrine informs the way in which we live. Do you want to grow in your understanding of the love and holiness of God? Do you want to grow in your understanding and appreciation for the good news that you have received, that you now stand in upon, the, upon faith in Jesus Christ? Friends, the way to do that, the way to grow, is not to isolate yourself away and to go read your favorite thing by yourself. Paul's recipe for growth in sound doctrine that feeds sound living is the local church. Friends, you can be that faithful older woman that gives her daughter a copy of this book and says, hey, go give this to that boy, read this with him, and help him to understand the gospel. Friends, Anita Roselius and Michaela Roselius helped me to become a Christian through this book. And in my pastoral experience, what I've learned is that oftentimes there's a temptation to grow outside of the gospel, yeah, 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 I get it. Jesus died for me. Well, now help me understand uh, uh, what superlapsarianism is, Christian. You will never have the need to grow outside of the gospel. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you're going to see that the greatest need you have is to grow deeper into the gospel. Do you know what would be really helpful? is that you not try to overshoot your ability to read and understand a lot of really heavy theology. And friends, grab a copy of Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer. Read this little book. I mean, it is super tiny. Read one entry a day with another member of the church and ask, friends, what is the ultimate prize that we are trying to attain towards? Dear sister, can you help me to grow in thankfulness that's enriched by the gospel? Vincent will help you to do that. Friends, you don't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting when it comes to growing in doctrine, but something that you can do, whether in D group or life group or just lunch with a friendly Christian, uh, a local member of the church, is to grab a helpful resource like this book that has changed my life and I am confident can change yours too. You might be somebody that wants to learn more about the systematic theology that the scriptures teach. Friends, there's a little book cart right down this hall Grab a copy of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. This is my personal copy. I cannot afford to give this one away. See me in a couple of months and I will buy you one, but read this book. This is a devotional theology book that will change your life. Find an older man or an older woman in the church and say, hey, will you read this book with me and help me to understand how the love of God changes the way that I behave as a Christian wife? This is a really helpful book. Friends, I got a couple more resources for you. My time's running out, so I'm gonna be real quick. No, uh, no, there's been no resource that has helped me to grow in my appreciation for the Christian doctrine than the Baptist catechism written by your older brother, Benjamin Keach in 1677. I carry this thing with me everywhere I go. You can read this brief catechism one question a day, one question a week, and you can ask your fellow Christian, friend, can you help me to understand what's required in the seventh commandment and how Jesus Christ has fulfilled that? You can do this. You can grow. You don't have to be the next great theologian. You don't have to uh, try to prove yourself to be the smartest Christian in the room. Read to understand what God expects of you as a Christian and read to inflame your passions for Christ. But friends, an even more helpful resource than that, y'all don't even have to buy this one. It's not even in the book cart. It's your membership directory. Next to your Bible, this little resource is the most important collection of paper that you will have. The membership directory shows you who the older men are that, are that is to be self-controlled, to help train the younger men. This membership directory helps you to see who the younger women are that will be trained in godliness by older women. In the back is your membership covenant. Friends, you and I have made some significant promises to one another. Do you know what one of these promises are that we've made according to the scriptures? That we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and will faithfully admonish and entreat one another as the occasion may require. Friends, that is sound doctrine. Do you want to grow? Read the membership covenant. This is the most extensive theological document that we have provided for you, and it's free. You don't even have to buy it. Friends, sound doctrine is for sound living you can indeed grow in your doctrine you can indeed live well but the way to do that is together amongst God's people according to God's word fueled and empowered by God's spirit resting upon God's grace we can do that you can do that we can do that together for Christ let's pray father we simply ask now that your grace would be with us, that we would grow in godliness, to, that we would grow in sound doctrine, not simply so that we can feed ourselves and enjoy uh, our intellectual pursuits, but Father, we ask and pray that you would help us to grow in sound doctrine and in sound living. Lord, may the grace of Christ be with us all, we ask in his name, amen.